Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Jared Orr, hanging out again with Kelly Noel, and this is Bradley's house. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Jared. How are you doing? Uh, I am awesome. I'm probably better than I deserve, Kelly, and uh, I am super <laughs> excited about our guest today. Guys, when the story of Sublime is told and you hear so much about Bud and Brad and Eric and they talk about Lou Dog, a man who should be mentioned in that same breath as Michael Happold, better known as Miguel, an integral part of the groundbreaking sound that is Sublime and their nearly 18 million albums sold. And when it seemed the scene was giving us seeds and stems, he brought us Skunk and we have him as our guest today. Miguel, welcome to Bradley's house. How's it going, man? Good. That was that was a nice little intro that I, I have to give it up. Um, but if you know, you definitely should take a breath between talking about um, the guys and Sublime and, and me because there's a lot to say about those guys. <laughs> Where would I be without Sublime? It's nothing but love to them guys. And you gotta get all of them on. Everyone's got cool stories and everybody's uh, got something to say. And so uh, thanks for having me, Kelly. How you doing? I'm fabulous. Thank you so much for doing this with us, Mike. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. You know, it's uh, it's always good to, you know, your family's been so good to me. I always like to help out and you just be a part of whatever you guys got going on. Well, you are family, obviously, and you have the greatest stories. I always look forward to talking with you because you always have something cool to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I never no, stop guys... talking. You could ask my parents. <laughs> so there's that. Hey. Now, you guys have known each other and been around the scene with each other for almost, what, 30 years now? No, yeah. no, because I'm only 25. That's impossible. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Thanks. Thanks for pointing that out, Jarrett. Yeah, feminine, well, I... Feminine math. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. Just a few years ago, right? You guys yeah. ran into each other yeah. as a couple of young kids in SoCal. Now... You guys ran into each other, obviously there in Southern California, but if the if the interwebs tell me correctly, uh, Miguel, you were born and kind of raised on the East Coast? Uh, Atlanta, yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I grew up in uh, Virginia Beach when I was a little kid, and then we moved to uh, Lakeland, Florida. And then I moved to uh, Dominguez Carson to go to uh, college. And uh, I like, Dominguez the school but I didn't like living there the dorms are kind of small and kind of quiet and uh so I, I went to Long Beach State my sophomore year I went concurrent to both schools used to be able to do that and uh and that's how I ended up living in Long Beach and eventually meeting Brad and Kelly and everybody in the gym rolled in and just never left I like it well I wouldn't say never left I've left twice a lot of people know that <laughs> We uh, we know the story, man. You met Brad at a at a party, and you had the, yeah. the Ziggins thing going on, and he kind of yeah. wanted to get involved in that. Uh, you guys yeah, started. He just doing... liked the band. He didn't really want to get involved. He just he just said like something along the lines of it's it's you know incredibly rare for somebody to hand me a demo tape that actually I I have to say I, I really enjoyed. He was like you know he was ready to just be like oh god another demo tape, and then uh, he was like. Who wrote these songs and who played this guitar? He just, he was a little, he was drawn to it. I hear the story about you played guitar with the Ziggins. How, how yeah. did that come about? And was it, did you step away from the Ziggins to focus more on Sublime or how that, how that all end? Uh, that's, you know, the John Pountney. I met John Pountney, John Ziggin, the bass player, um, the first day of school, freshman year, first day. We were uh, recording school uh, students together. So we're sitting in the same classroom 
and then he lived in the in the dorms where I lived. And so I was like, hey, you know what I mean? Uh, what's going on? You know, because we were recording majors. There wasn't that many of us. There was only, like, you know, 20, 20 of us or something. Well, more than that, like 30, 35 or something like that. But the freshman class was only a handful of guys. So we know each other. We, we started hanging out. We were beer buddies, drinking beer, hanging out, playing music loud. And then when Bert came over and uh, they were in the band, we go, you have a band? Oh, this, you know. And uh, everybody in his house, uh, his apartment had, they were all musicians, amps piled up everywhere. And Bert, and Bert would play uh, his songs. And the very first time he played them, I was like, is that, you know, who's that? Who, who? And he's like, those, and they, they all knew him. They're like, those are, that's our songs. That's, that's, uh, and I was like, you wrote them songs. I never met anybody who wrote songs that were good. I, you know, that was, the, that was the first lightning strike of that thing, part of my life, you know? Uh, and so we were just friends like that, hanging out. And they had another guitar player. Ah, his name escapes my mind right now, but he was good. And they were cool. We we recorded the song Mrs. Brown with that lineup. And then that guitar player flaked out. And I eventually joined the band. And uh, we recorded the first album with the little apple hanging. C-O-O, what is it? C-O-O-2. C-S-E-O-O-2. And that was, you know, just fucking around uh, in the studio. When I was just learning, I was trying 19 <laughs> when I made that record. What was the original plan? I mean, coming out from, coming out to the West Coast and obviously going to school, what were you hoping to do with your degree? Oh, well, I was hoping to make music history. That that part is, <laughs> I left everything. I, I came out 100% committed, 100% committed to uh, life and music in California. Well, it all paid off. Now, Kelly, like I said, you guys have been around and known each other for 30 years. Do you remember the first time you met Miguel? I do not. I wish I could say that I could, but, you know, at the time, he was probably just one of Brad's friends and it, didn't really... It was um, the first time, I think, Kelly, if I had to just throw the dice, it would be, um, it was at the boat parade party. And You're you were killing the... me with your memory. That's crazy. Do you remember? Like, it was the it was the boat parade party, and Brad said you should come and... It's really fun, and we'll just stay for like thirty minutes. <laughs> and I, I remember, you know, I met you and your uh, and your and your uh, ex husband, and your. I don't know if you even had kids yet. I don't even think you had no, kids yet. Did not. Uh-uh. It was probably like ninety or ninety one. Yeah, it must have been ninety one. That's when I got married. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and that was it. Then we just sort of only see each other occasionally, like that. Yeah, right on. No, but, but it was I, a fun night. It was one of those nights with your dad on the piano and everything, you know? Yeah, those are good. I've never are, seen anything like that, like, a, like in my life, like, a, you know, and I think your, yeah. your grandpa was still alive playing the banjo and shit. It was yeah, amazing. yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, we were just at dad's boat parade party last year and he was playing the piano and playing the he guitar. And, yeah, he does. Those are good times. Love that. Well, I'll be yeah. there this year with bells on. If they have one, hopefully sure. they'll see. I know, they'll right? wear a we'll mask see. or something. We'll see. Yeah. No, but Miguel was just always a fixture. I mean, he was, he was just there. And uh, obviously it was a big, a big part of everything that was going on and a big friend of Brad's. And so, yeah, yeah. when we met um, me and uh, Brad, we were real similar. Um, Our station in life was identical. If you can understand what I'm trying to say, you know, we were both kind of getting paid to go to college, (laughs) you know, expected (laughs) to come out of it with a career loved music we both had a four track a drum machine a mic set up at all times the big stereo 
and we both had we had a lot of free time on our hands so we just started hanging out kind of constantly because uh we're kind of on the same schedule and we had sort of the same freedom as you could the same, yeah. same interests and that's sort of how the whole thing began we did one recording how i met the band is we did a recording and it didn't come out that good and then that was the there was like a process of, of brad trying to teach me you know show me the sound he was after which was cool that was like a whole chapter of um learning so the second time we went to the studio we knew exactly kind of what we were going for and uh, we got uh like djs and bad fish and a couple of really good songs you know that's when i was like 20. yeah that stuff is pure gold so we were starting to, we were starting to do real good we really felt like we uh had a handle on the recording part of it because nobody was helping us you know it was me setting up all the mics and mixing it and everything uh at the school at dominguez hills had the studio at the school there so when you say you had the studio there did you really just you had the keys to the studio right that's what it was all about uh well you know they let you in and out but well they let you in they 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 let you in when you left and closed the door it was locked so you left whenever you wanted they let you in but you had you got let out whenever you wanted that was the key the keys so So they let you in and then you let all of them in no you you had bands part part of the recording uh curriculum was you were supposed to bring in a band that you could show up, you know, a, a flyer, and a, you know, you had to qualify. It had to be a, a working band, you know, that had a, a picture and a flyer, and and you know, you showed it to the instructor, and he said, okay, and then you bring the band in, and and you record a song and turn it in as your grade. And how good did you, could you make a, how good of a band did you pick? Because it was a production class, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was so a how double did you major. Do? Did you I, get a good grade? No, I got a I got a C uh, minus. Oh, harsh. On the song Badfish, yeah. He said the bass <gasps> was like not even close to being balanced. And it was like the great it was like Brad's like prized possession of his life, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? He was like driving around. He, Brad yeah. had the, the car that just shook the earth. He had so much bass. <laughs> Which car was that? Around. It was that uh the Jeep, the uh, oh, yeah. Jeep. I do. Yeah, the Cherokee. That was the car when I met him. He had the Cherokee, and uh, we went everywhere in that thing. And uh, here's a fun fact: when I met those guys, Bud, Eric, and Brad could get in the Cherokee with all the equipment, and and uh, Lou Dog wasn't around yet, just Toby. And the Toby and the three of those guys, and all the gear, including the PA, could get in the Cherokee. <laughs> it was not a large car either. No, That's awesome. It's impossible. <laughs> The way they stacked it like Tetris, and then there was one little seat behind the seats, the front seats. And then Toby, they would put like a bunch of sweatshirts on the shifter column, and Toby would kind of sit with it, park and break it, you know, the console Uh there in the the middle. middle. Yeah. (laughs) I love that shit. When I saw that, I was like, this is total commitment. Like, this is. You know what I mean? Your brother yeah. would be, Brad, just be shirtless with his shades. Yeah, doing whatever it yeah. takes. Yeah. After the show, yeah, he'd come by and be like, "Here, get some taste," or you know, did, you know, I was starting to help him then, like, get some flyers made. You know, we started hanging. We started. I, I started trying to help them. We we put the they had made a recording with Steve McNeil, a good guy from around here, uh, Mambo Sound. He's still doing it. He was doing it then. He's still doing it. Uh, and um, 
he had made that Ray had made a four song tape. And so I started distributing it. I put that out on skunk cause I had already done the Ziggins. Um, and I had a few stores and so, you know, that's, that's kind of how it all began. So then we had this, then we were kind of saw that a few of them sold and, and Brad liked having the tapes to give to people when he run into them. And, uh, and so we, we, we set out to make another tape. And so, you know, one song at a time, we started with DJs. We made a whole nother tape and that was John won't pay the bills. And that, that one, ever elusive green cassette, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we sold a lot of them things. I mean, obviously most of them ended up stomped on the floor. We didn't, people didn't take care of the shit back then. I, I didn't, nobody did really, but. Yeah, if you guys all knew what you could sell sell those for now on eBay, you would have been taking a lot better care of them. Those things yeah. are like, well, Jared, this <laughs> might this might not have occurred to you, but we sell other things, uh, <laughs> so you can't be too greedy. You know, pretty happy for the, what we do sell. Thank you, for people, for listening. Absolutely. What we do stream, we stream right, a lot right. of things these days. And we're back. Um, so that was a, uh, when you guys were recording that four track and you guys are doing job, won't pay the bills. Did you ever have, when did you have that moment? Like, Oh my God, this is it. This is something special. And this is going to be a big deal. Uh, the, the slightest hint of it was, um, when John won't pay the bills, we got five, we got the five new songs. John won't pay the bills is the five, the four songs they already had when I met them. And then, um, five new ones that we did. We put them on the same tape just to have more songs. And so when people, people had the first tape and they wore it out. And so they were ready for the new tape. And so when we finally got the actual mass duplicated uh, cassettes, like 200 cassettes in a box, ready to just hand people. The first show at Bogarts was, that was our spot. Bogarts was where all the shows were at. And we go down there and you could drink in the parking lot and shit. It was old school. Like it was chill as fuck. You know what I mean? Like, Marina Pacifica. They could drink in that parking lot for a while. Then they they started getting it all started changing. The whole world started changing. They started coming around saying no, and then you couldn't smoke in the bar. And oh my god! But it was nice to like live in a kind of more wild a wild time. It was kind of fun. And and uh, so we would hang out in the park. The point I'm trying to get at is we the whole crew would hang out in the parking lot. And my buddy had a booming system in his car. Like a real nice, he was really into it. I think he sold weed then. You know, this is 90, 91. <laughs> he, had a, you know, he had a nice car and he showed up and he had to like, there was just no tourist that he had the most ripping expensive stereo in his car, nice car. And the tape was out. It was the magic combination of, uh, we had the tape and uh, Pat was his name, who's there. And Pat had the car. We knew the stereo was for rock like no other. And, uh, and we were drinking beers, hanging out. We popped the tape in to his system and put all the windows down and just cranked up full blast. Everyone's hanging in the parking lot, right? And Jack Manis comes up to me and goes, you better get paperwork on that shit. Because everyone was so, like, fucking, like, blown away. Like, sounded so good on this dude's step. You know what I mean? It was, like, the debut of the of the shit and not just, like, on a boombox, like, just shaking the concrete. You know what I mean? Like. That's how we were. Everything was kind of grandiose. Brad was like that. He kind of, you know, he was big on that. Like, this is where everyone's going to finally hear it right now. When, as soon as he saw Pat's car, he was like, oh, 
changing plans. I was like, we should give those tapes out. He still wasn't sure. He's like, no. Nah. And then yeah, he, he didn't want to waste them. You know, he's like, I don't want to give them to people. Gonna, only going to, if I'm going to get a gig, maybe. You know? There was a limited number of them. But then we, when he played it, that was it. Everyone started just bugging out and it just patting Eric and Brad on the back, you know, like it was just like a moment, like, man, like the, the crew was kind of like took them by surprise, like blown away. Cause it comes in real strong. You know, oh, the DJ, sorry, I'm taking a last. And everyone's like, what? You know, and just do, 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 just rocking. It sounded so good. Even now, I was like nervous when it was, I heard the click of the cassette going in. I was like in my gut, like nervous. It was going to sound terrible. You know? I was the engineer. It was down to me. You know? <laughs> And then it sounded good. I was like, "Oh shit, thank God!" That's all I remember. It was like a minute, like a minute, a second of a uh, just oh, thank God feeling. Like that sounds pretty good. And, and then, everybody loved and then it. Jack, and then Jack's just was like, you know, Jack was a fixture. He was with us all the time. And that's how he, is. he kind of worries about shit. <laughs> he was right. He's like, you you got to get some paperwork on that. That's real music right there. He's like, that's real music right there. And I was like, all right. And then that's where you know. It, did, it really went from there. People really heard that tape and saw a, a pretty polished product in Sublime. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, wow, everything's there. And uh, good songs and interesting, interesting sound. But it was completely out of sync with the world. That was the only problem. So only people with diverse tastes understood it. And now everyone has diverse tastes. So that's not, it's hard to understand. It's hard to explain. But back then, only very certain people had diverse tastes in music. Like as far as being able to listen to Sublime and go like, okay, I hear what they're doing, you know, and get it like, yo, this totally makes sense. You'd have to have already listened to all the kind of music we had already listened to, you know, and not everybody had that wide range yet. The whole world was coming apart, like together like that. But everything is always goes into genres real fast. Like genres is just easier. A band gets popular and everybody sounds like that band, Chili Peppers or Pearl Jam or whatever, and that's fine. But like the the rule breaking bands were always the fun. That's what me and Brad especially enjoyed was like the artists that like just completely just do what they do, you know, not really paying attention, looking right or left, only looking straight ahead, you know. So that's we and he was hell bent to set out to be a that kind of band, which he didn't have to do. I understood why I wanted to, and I and I helped him as much as I could. Um, but you know, we get tons of people that just tell them, pick a style, and record a five song demo, and I'll get you a million dollars. You know what I mean? Like that, that happened a lot. Like just be a, a punk singer, just be a rapper, just be a reggae singer, and just make five songs like just that people can understand, like just normal the way bands do it, and sing good, and, and let's go. And he was like, no, he wanted to be the Clash, Beastie Boys. He wanted all the all the sound, everything. He had a vision. He certainly seemed like he wanted to do things his way. And I, I think I heard you yeah. say in an interview one time that you were adamant about not starting 40 ounces with Ruka and Brad wanted to. Oh, uh, I wasn't. I mean, I, there was no adamant. I just didn't put one. He made a list. I made a list. And we got when we saw each other, we were going over the list. And I didn't have it first. And he had it first. And I was like kind of just took me aback. He, it was, I, it was just low. I had it like, I don't know, like song eight. I had it like leading into something. And he was like, no, I want to start with that. And it just sort of took me aback. We we get together and then we make an order. And then we had the dat machine and we'd make a, a 
we make a cassette of the of the new sequence. We keep changing the same. That's how we get the sequence. When God would map it out, and then he'd come with change. We just kept messing with it, and then uh, he came in with it all with like that. With but see, the thing was, it started with Ruka, and went into the song "Get Out," that's dropped off the album. That's how it used to start, and that made more sense. Absolutely. When it goes, yeah. from, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's just my two cents. I mean, I made the record, but it doesn't work to go from Ruka into Forty Ounce. It kind of does now because of history, but it really doesn't production wise. Kind of interesting. It worked out all right, but that was shit was heartbreaking to us that the album people heard wasn't even really like just taking out the most famous part of a movie, you know? And it's like the movie doesn't. It still makes sense, but it's like, you just kind of, man, that shit was sad. What are you, you going to do? We had too many samples. It's a great song. It's on YouTube. Get out. You got to go check out the original. We did a remix on a secondhand smoke, an album called secondhand smoke. And it's pretty good. A good remix. Marshall uh, Goodman did that. And uh, I love that version too. It's really cool, but it's not the same. We had to cut a lot of samples, but the original illicit sample version is, is something else. It's one of my favorite things. How does the Miguel freestyle not make it in the? Because you, you you had a little rap in the in the original yeah. Get Out, and then it doesn't uh, make it in the next cut. I didn't appreciate that. I love <laughs> right. I, I love that rap. I honestly I don't remember. That so might be a Marshall question. I mean, because it was on the tape. I was not there when he did the final mix on that. I worked on the song with him, doing some overdubs and getting it to a point of being mixed. But Marshall and Eddie mixed that song, Eddie Ashworth. I don't think I was there. I think I came in the morning and it was done. And I like loved it. You know, just, I just loved the whole. And then they took, it was gone at the end. I was like, fuck it. You know, I, I, just, got, I just, I don't remember. Honestly, I didn't say anything. It didn't bother me. I was like, I never really wanted to be a rapper. I never really wanted to, I would always wanted to do that rap again too anyway. But anyway. Yeah, it's I out it there was... if you want to hear it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely out there. And it gets shared a, a lot in like the Sublime groups on Facebook and places like that. You have to understand, my aspiration was to be Bert Suzanka. I was going to be a, a Brad. I, that's the thing that Bert and Brad liked about me was I was doing the same thing. I was going to play guitar and write songs and sing and make records. Like, let's go. Let's, let's do this. Let's see. And, and But those two were like, they were both so, you know, they became two of my best friends ever you know without a doubt and but also like sort of in a way like ruined it for me for a while like i couldn't even begin to like try to be the front guy with those two guys around it was like you know what i mean it was like come on man i know what you're saying they're really good you know it's like it's really you know so i sort of just became this dude who was like there to back you up i got your back i'm the other i'll we'll finish i'm the finish the song guy for like 10 years and that's not a bad place to be. That's a good place to be. For sure. When you have people popping up with really good ideas, but they just have run out of energy to get it done. And it's new to you. As a frustrated songwriter, for it's, it's easy for me to finish other people's songs when they're this close, you know, just get right through it. So that's been, so that's sort of the, where I existed, you know, after and just the in the early part of my, and then I got back into performance and writing songs. Really just, you know, around 2010, just sort of like as a full circle, the production work thing is kind of weird. It's kind of a, it was a strange time for that. And uh, it just sort of felt like just getting back uh, playing music and singing and, and all that shit was, uh, 
you know, it's definitely something that goes away. So I just figured try to you better try to get take it seriously for a while, get back into that end of it. It, it was really a lot of fun. And then uh, it's really made the whole production aspect of what I do come full circle. That's like the greatest knowledge is now understanding how a song can get lost <laughs> from where it, how it sounds in your head to how the final mix is. It's like, huh, okay, yeah, you could see now the frustration of a songwriting artist with the initial idea and then what you end up with after many hours and it's not even like on the mark. So I feel like it's been the final chapter in my production career to learn like how to preserve. It's like I have a whole other vast chamber of knowledge of like how to preserve the idea and get it all the way over the finish line and still have the two lay on top of each other and, and match. So that's been a frustration for eons of every genre of musician. So I'm, I'm excited that finally towards the end as everything goes down the tubes, I get like kind of got a firm grasp on the subject now. So I can't complain on that. I think you sell yourself way short. You're you're an amazing <laughs> musician and uh, and a great a great front man. And it's been it's yeah. been proven. Now on forty ounces, you you know you had that original rap on Get Out. Um, you're you're singing Scarlet Begonias. Why didn't we get more Miguel features in later Sublime albums? Well, just the dynamic changes. All of the Sublime music is really uh anthropologically speaking you know what i mean <laughs> that's a word uh is like the the natives were doing you know where what were the stars that were in a certain position in the skies where they were doing what they were doing you know like why and how kind of gets a little hard to nail down as things just sort of moved on the next record robin the hood i wasn't in the stage band anymore i was in the stage band we were making a i was being the producer brad's friend hanging out. Then I was in a stage band. We started touring. We did two tours as a four piece, one with Marshall, one with Kelly Vargas. And um, it really went nowhere as far as like uh, catching on kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it, we had the CD out and it just wasn't catching on yet. And that was really frustrating for Brad, man. That was like the start of the trouble. Was that like around that period? And really the whole thing just sort of fell apart. And when it got put back together, Bud came back and it just sounded good as a three-piece and the whole dynamic was just completely different. I was never really in the creative like uh, space for a while, for like two years there. Because it was just sort of Brad had his four track and was I'd go over there and I'd set everything out and help him out. But he would do all his best work at like four in the fucking morning, you know. So... <laughs> It was like a fisherman setting up the the trap, you know, and I'd go on the next day and there'd be fucking shit in the trap, you know? Like, holy shit, there's eels in there, like, you know? Eels. And, and uh, you know, and so, and then we, I'd try to mix what he did, you know? So I wasn't around for a lot of for Robin the Hood. I was around, but not at how he made some of that shit is still a fucking mystery to me. That was a mystery. There's many, many, many mysteries on that shit. That's like some ancient aliens. And and then the other songs that aren't the four track, I produced those tracks, but I did, it was the band, like they, they were just, they had, it was all filled. There was no need to, like, you know what I mean? The, the overdubs that I got, that got, that I did on 40 Ounce of Freedom was what I was playing on the stage anyway. 
So not being in the stage band, there was there wasn't a lot of like sticking my head in and inserting shit that didn't belong. So that's just how that album went. What the hell did I really do on that record? I played some guitar. I played guitar on Step and Razor. I played uh, bass on the uh, the secret track, the Mud Honey cover. Shit, that's about it. I mean, I mixed all those songs. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that you weren't just a, a band member. I mean, you and Brad were were pretty tight. You guys were friends. And so you're still just kind of being around and watching this all happen. You were telling us a pretty cool story earlier about uh, about a cat. Brad just kind of coming and getting a cat and, and grabbing it from you. And uh, it just shows how close you guys actually were outside of the whole Sublime thing, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a family. It was a big family. And so hanging out, the, the band thing, you can't really rush the band thing. And we just kind of had like a, the only way I can describe it is like we had like a rich social life. You know, we there was just always stuff going on, man. You know, it was like always, but the shows were the best thing. But, you know, you can't play every, you know, every night or whatever. So the Sublime thing ran through everything it was like sort of just like everybody in society that knew those guys they were like proud to be a part of like sublime you could see that you know i could see that like i said i was kind of like an anthropologist because i didn't know people i'm just sort of studying their behavior and that's what i saw i just saw a genuine love for the music um not just the hanging out and partying part and uh it's kind of just it seemed impossible to accomplish that you know so as it started to get bigger it was it was really good feeling and there's something we honor. That's why we made a Robin the Hood against the grain against so many odds. Like you can't even imagine, man. Like, you know, band should have broke up, tape should have got in It's just a miracle. That album's a straight fucking miracle, man. Of everything. Every aspect of it. My cousin Eric mastered it. <laughs> it is work on his lunch break. Cause he worked at a nice <sighs> studio in Hollywood, you know. Uh we didn't have money for that and it was all new. The digital technology was so expensive and he was doing it for movies, not even what well, he was doing sound. Anyway, the whole thing was like a patchwork quilt of miracles. That's what the album should have been called. So that, so that record, I, I guess we just, we didn't have a lot of time to fuck around. So I'm not on it a lot, but I was there for every day of that record too. In another way, you know, the next day I clean up mess, try to figure it out, mix it down, salvage it. And we'd move on. But it was it was interesting. There's a lot of that record I wasn't around for because I wasn't on the same trip. And then it's, by self-titled, everything kind of came back to normal. We had time to work on things. I was throwing in my two cents a little bit more. So I come back, I'm, I'm, I do more stuff, more shit on a self-titled. I've heard that Brad basically recorded Robin the Hood in a, in a house that he was like squatting in in Dana Point. Is that is that true? Um, parts of it, yeah. A few songs. <laughs> It was all over. It was a mobile. We had this, mo you know, it was pretty much a mobile recording rig. It started, they had a, a Jack, Brad, and Brent French, rest in peace, had a, a storefront apartment, I guess you could call it. Nearly an apartment, but yeah. Remember that place on Ohio and uh, I Anaheim? I do. Anaheim, yeah. I do remember. The yeah. storefront? Kelly, you remember that? Yeah, that's what we called it, the storefront. That was frightening. I it was down frightening. I lived, uh, I lived on, um, I, that's Ohio. That was, uh, Anaheim and yeah. Ohio. I lived on yeah. Ohio and six, so I could skate, I could skate there and back. And yeah, that, that, so it started there. So we had, so what happened was all the equipment we had scattered all over town, all congealed there. And it was all set up every day. I'd show up at a normal, like one or two 
get some beers, and the whole shit would be like spaghetti on the floor and and, and nothing on the tape every like three days in a row. And I set the whole fucking thing back up. So all you had to do was turn the machine on and hit record and play. And it would be not only on the tape, it would sound good. And I'd come back the next day, everything in shambles, unplugged, noodle, and nothing on the tape. And so finally I was like, all right, this is fucking madness. And they had, a, this is no joke, they had a, at the liquor store that's still there, they had a school supplies and they had the straight car, the uh, poster board. Remember how like poster board used to be kind of like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And I bought the poster board and made Brad write it, and we went step by step. I go, I'm not setting it back up. You're gonna, and he wrote down all the uh, like uh, what I'm gonna do, everything I did, and then he had it staple gun to the wall above the recorder, and that was it. He just went, so he couldn't get stuck. Is what I'm saying. It was like everything was there. He could check, and everything worked, and he was all good. And that shit worked like a charm. And so he got a lot of shit done there. Him and Marshall did what I got there. Uh, work that we do. A lot of songs came from that. And that was cool. But everything had to go. And then it went to it went back to uh, Jim and Janie's on the Bay. We recorded a lot of stuff upstairs. It's Jim and Janie's. And then that uh, it ended bad. And we ended up in a, at the Dana Point house. And then from the Dana Point house, it went to uh, back to Eric's house, Eric Wilson's house. We did some shit there. And then uh, I think eventually, I think it just sort of like, it ended up just in storage. <laughs> so yeah, we it was all over. We recorded all over. But yeah, at one point there was a house in Orange County that, that was that was pretty terrible. But it was a effective house. It had heat. We, we were able to make noise. It was cool. We got a lot of shit done at that place. That's awesome. Kelly, what was it like for you? at the? You said all the storefront. I remember that. Now, I know you said you and Brad tried to hang out and party a few times and it didn't really work out. Did you realize what, what was going on in the music that he was creating? Or did you just think, oh, it's just my brother and his stinky friends drinking beer? Yeah, mostly that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I went to go visit him at the storefront, I was just mostly horrified at his living conditions. <laughs> but again, you know, that was just from the point of view of a younger sister, not really someone who was appreciating the art that was being created there. Well, we weren't, it was, it was kind of hard to see at that point too, right? Kelly? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. It was really, it was really kind of heartbreaking that uh, it really took a long time to sort of get any kind of success. It kind of wore the band down, you know, especially Brad. We kept plugging away, but it was definitely it took a long time, you know, and uh, and that's part of like how it all kind of you know fell apart was just a long wait. So I'm glad we got through that period, you know, and we're able to to make the third record, which was definitely a, a step step in the right direction. Yeah, waiting was not Brad's strong suit, that's for sure. Yeah, it definitely uh, it caused a lot of, uh, you know, now we, now we know. It was like, a, it started like a depression chain in Brad. Absolutely. Because he wasn't like that before, but he, he maybe he would he was too guarded to get, like set his uh, sights too high. I mean, we used to just play uh, 40 Ounce of Freedom at parties to people we played in Santa Barbara or something, went to the house afterwards, you know, kind of thing. Just packed, it wasted people. When we blast our the 40 ounce CD and people would go nuts. A demo tape, it's like, oh God, back then, especially somebody's like, this band wants to play their tape. It's like, oh no, people would like, there'd be a stampede to get out of the room. You know what I mean? Like, 
it was hard to make a good demo tape back then. You know, studios kind of were so expensive. It was so out of reach. So it was kind of one of those feelings like that we things should look up, should be looking up. And then we, we even mailed all the CDs and the the press kit with the 810 and the poster, you know, everything. <laughs> we mailed it to all the labels, like shit, probably like at least 40, 50 uh, label A&Rs. Did he I took a lot diligence? of pressure on himself. You know, I remember he had a bunch of books about the music industry and was always reading about, you know, how to negotiate a contract and not get screwed over and that kind of stuff. I think he just took a lot of that pressure on himself. Oh, he loved it. He was the captain of the ship and he wanted to know where all the islands in the, uh, in the channel of passage were and they, you know, and get his crew safe, make sure yeah. he had wood and water. Yeah. He was ready. Like he loved that part of it. When I met him, he he wanted to be a big part of that. And, uh, you know, that's what I mean. So we just kept plugging it. We just kept plugging away. And uh, what happened was when I was, before I met uh, Saban, the, the uh, I, you know, I was in the Ziggins and I was going to Dominguez and living in Long Beach, like a, pretty much a full year. So we had a whole crew, like a Ziggins crew of, you know, like-minded fellas and some girls that like to come to see us play and we'd hang out and drink. So we had two crews. Once the Sublime and the Ziggins crew started, we started playing shows together. Then we had two crews. Crew doubled like overnight, and that's kind of interesting because some of the same people are around. But but Long Beach, like Sublime's crew, everybody was from Long Beach, pretty much. You know, Brad had some friends from college and, and stuff like that, but the most part, ninety percent was like guys from Long Beach. And then the Ziggins crew, like the original Skunk crew, when I met Brad. There was nobody from Long Beach. <laughs> you know, everyone was from somewhere else in the state. You know. So when we started touring, that was our resource was the like, Ziggins crews, all the people from Sacramento and San Diego and shit. So we had like places to try to go get shows and places to stay and shit like that. So. Okay, so now you had mentioned getting to the third album, recording, recording self-titled. And obviously it's the, the biggest, the most critically acclaimed, and you had a big part in that. Um, in fact, is there any truth to the rumor that it's actually you playing the guitar solo and what I got? Yeah, that, that's, that's me. That's, that's no rumor. That's credited on the album, the CD, the day it came out. But um, we had the two records and then eventually um, through Greg Abramson, like I said, the Ziggins crew, original crew, uh, Greg Abramson went on to work at a uh, gasoline alley in him and a uh, Sporto, Chris Kasky, uh, befriended John Phillips and John started coming to the shows and they got John excited about sublime game CDs and John got some pull with the label and he signed us up. So then we had a budget. We toured a little bit, um, date rate breaks, right? So we could do bigger tours. We're getting good shows. By the time the dust settles, we're signed to this label. We go to make the record. The first session was a total access. Um, we did a few things on our own to kind of get shit together, and that went good. And then uh, we sent that tape to David Kahn, and he uh, accepted, and we went to work with him, and, and we did uh, four songs. What I got was one of them. I played the solo on the... Actually, the solo is from the four track. We, we had made What I Got on the four track, and um, the solo me and brad were playing together on the four track and then when we made the 
when we did the final final version, we put it on twenty four track and added to it, and so the solo stayed. David Carlin liked it. He he did, he liked the sound of it. Um, I replayed it on the Larry version. Physically, just replayed it because it's a completely different. Uh, the last song on self titled. That's me playing it again, but that's uh, that's uh, you know like a nice setup. Interestingly, you know, like a nice guitar and. A, but the original is from the four track, you know, so that's kind of interesting. Still sounds good when you hear it. It sounds amazing. Now, you guys are recording self-titled, and we obviously know about the struggles. They're well-documented. But after you guys yeah. finally get it done, and you've got it mixed, and it's in the can, did you know what you were sitting on? Did you know what you had? I thought it was pretty solid. You know, it was hard to, uh, when you're that close to something, you kind of only hear the flaws. You kind of only have worry. But, I mean, I... I I, I really thought if nothing else, we had nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Like it was, it's hard to be back then. It was real hard to be like optimistic. There were so many like little indie bands and it was weird time. Like with major labels, it was hard to get attention. So it was one of those things where you didn't want to celebrate. Like we knew, we, we knew we worked hard on, we knew it was the best thing that we'd ever done as far as the production, Paul Leary. We went out to Texas with Paul for like a month or two and, just you know he just worked overtime and Stuart Sullivan a great engineer so we knew that we had done a, a really good job and we had really accomplished what we wanted to accomplish the one thing was you know we made a lot of those songs like uh, we had like rough maybe two minutes on a cassette of like a jam and we would play that and we'd make those into songs you know the guys would get in there and make those into songs on the spot and then we'd have to somehow get lyrics. It was just like a scramble. So it was, it was bittersweet because we knew we had a better record in us, but we knew it was good. But like, we we're like, damn, we're already ready. We were ready for the next one is what I'm saying. So when it started to do good, we were pretty happy before it came out. We did a tour with Wesley Willis. We had to tape the tapes <laughs> in the boom box. So we always see our, we said, while we were sitting there drinking beers, we were like duping it off for people. Because back then it was like, say, okay, your album's done. It's going to come out in like a year. You know, like we were already making tapes for people. And uh, we made a tape for the Wesley Willis fiasco. They were on tour with us doing a little run. And they were just our bros. And we were, we were you know, they had our other albums. You know, we were, we were good friends and mutual. We liked their band and they liked our band. And we went, we had like a long ass drive. I think we gave them like our tape or made them a tape, gave them our tape one or two. And, and we had this long ass drive. We didn't, it was in one ear and out the other. We didn't even think about it. And then we stopped to get like gas and food. And they were just like, like they'd been through something, you know what I mean? They're like, you can't, that's like impossibly good. Like they were so blown away. You know, it was like, that was kind of like the start. It was like, damn, maybe it really is good. You know, like, Cause they were like brutally honest people. It was they were like, dude, we just listened to that three times in a row. <laughs> I was like, Dave Quackenbush was the same. He's like, I just listened to that like three times in a row from the Vandals. Uh, we were like, damn. So it was definitely we knew it was, we were moving up a notch. That's for damn sure. We were proud of it. It took a long time to get it together from forty ounce to that. But uh, yeah, we it was it was nice to see it all finally come together and. It had slow ups and downs as they're well documented. But, you know, for me, I was, I was just always looking forward to the next one. I was like, they're going to let us do another one. They're going to let, you know, I was just happy that they were going to let us do another one, you know, 
was out of town. I knew they were going to let us do another one. Then we got dropped after Brad passed away. So then Brad passes away. And we get dropped. Or maybe we got dropped while Brad was still alive. I can't remember exactly. Actually, I think we got dropped while he was still alive. At least there was talks that it was coming. It was really like we had a uh, we had a uh, gig booked with Zeke, this dude Zeke from K Rock. When we when we got the album mastered, they let they let us master the album. And at the time, to burn CDs was like they were like five hundred dollars a piece. This is ninety six, and so we got them to authorize three CDs. <laughs> Or four, four CDs. Yeah, four CDs. Three guys in a band and me. And so we had literally four CDs of Sublime Self-Titled existed in the world. And then they sent it off. And it was going to be like four months till it came out. And then Brad, we lost Brad. So we had a show already on the books for K-Rock in Hollywood. It was Zeke, this dude, the DJ. He really liked us. They were playing our song. And uh, I gave him the CD, right? My my CD. I said, you you know, you didn't get this from me. You know what I mean? You <laughs> right. <laughs> and he calls me like two days later. He's like, tune in tomorrow. Your life's gonna change. And Jed the Fish started playing what I got. Fuck it. We were dropped, dropped flat. The paper was signed. Despair. Brad was gone. Right. We owed him all this money. And the next thing you know, fuck it. Uh, they started playing it and it just blew like you can that's well documented in the k-rock arc like the fan response was just like the most dominant thing for a while you know that they knew it totally blew up the phones and the request line and then john phillips who was our manager he signed us and then he was our manager so like you said, it would have happened one way or the other, but like the way it happened was i gave zeke the cd and he played it and that forced their hand and then john went in there said how many bands on your label are they playing on k-rock you know and just got them and thank god they uh they they put the record out and they even agreed to that the first video which is a great video what i got's a great video so it saved the day um you know it was it was a terrible time losing bravs was horrific on every level um but also to have the album be stalled it's just really it was incredible like rough period to go through and like have to like kind of figure that all out and then we just got super lucky man like i, I would keep the cd with me because uh i didn't even trust it in the car or my house yeah it was like it was on my person like a weapon at all times you see what i'm trying to say and so i seen zeke at the thing i didn't even think he was really going to be there I, at the end of the night he was like leaving with some girls i was like come on i'll talk to you and i gave him the cd and I said, I didn't give you that because, you know, back then it had like, it was kind of weird rules about that kind of shit. And so, uh, but <laughs> you know what I mean? And eventually it just got down the line. I don't know if John, if they had a meeting with John and he went in there and brought it in officially or something, but he, but uh, it just started that way. We were like, no, we just determined to like try to get in somehow, try to get people to hear it and make uh, at least, you know, the legacy go on, Brad's legacy go on. And then, you know, we did the Long Beach Dubs. And it just went on and on from there. You know, Slightly Stupid was a small band, and then they became a bigger band, and just on and on and on. 
are we ever going to get more Pero Bravo? Yeah, hell yeah, man. That that's just like a hiatus. We were just taking a little break, and then the bullshit hit, and that's making the break seem like an even crazy ass longer break. But we kind of took like 2019 kind of off. We only did like four shows, and then and then obviously 2020 has been a disaster. Um, well, as I don't, I'm sure you know because Kelly asked. The intro to Bradley's House podcast is yeah. the last ska song. Writing that song had to have been something that was pretty emotional for you. I mean, it's an awesome sh- song and a great tribute to to Brad. What was it like writing that and, and putting that out? Uh, that tune, I put that together with Gil Sharon, the great drummer. And it's an interesting song. I wanted to do a song as a tribute to Sublime. All three of those guys, the way they were very clever, the way they put the little parts together and the little changes and little skips and jumps. So I wanted, I sat down, I said, I want to do a song that reminds me of Sublime, going through all the different ska and reggae and punk and folk all in two, you know, 20 seconds. And then I said, well, it'd be really cool if it was only four chords, you know. <laughs> And so I started to say, how many different ways can you play four chords, you know? So I had the music, and then Gil Sharon is just my favorite drummer in the world, great guy, good friend. I had it, it was crazy. I had it on a piece of paper. I had to look at the piece. It's called a chart. I had to look at the chart just to play it. I had it all written out. And Gil just copied the chart on drums and played it in one take, you know? And I was like, damn. And so I had to finish the song. Cause I thought it was going to be too complicated to show a band. <laughs> it's really not, but it was kind of okay to write with, with a great drummer. He did it in one take, but anyway, so I didn't have the lyrics at first. I just had the, I, I had music that inspired me like, like an old sublime song, like would do some, something that I would present to Brad. Like uh, it sounds kind of crazy, but I kind of act like Brad's coming back. I mean, obviously I know he's not, but mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt like to act like, He's coming back to me, you know, because it's kind of a big thing that he gave his life for this music and stuff. And so I still kind of like approach music like I'm going to play it, you know, see if he wants to do it on his record, you know, like country, you know, like country or something. Like, I'm going to go see if Hank wants to do this song, you know. If he wants it, he doesn't. If he, if he don't want it, I'll do it, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Chris Christopherson does his own tunes, but, you know, Janis Joplin does them better, you know. So That's right. Uh, so I look at it like that. It's kind of how I look at it. Like I'm just existing to write these songs, but it was I was inspired by them musically, and then the lyrics kind of came when Jake started making material. He was in Hawaii at Jamin and Tickers and Thieves' house, and they uh, they called me and they were goofing around, and and uh, he held the phone and Jake played like a song on his you know on his guitar, and uh, that's the phone call from Hawaii. It was pretty cool. And I was driving down the coast, walking the dog at a Rincon, I don't know, Santa Barbara. And the moon was out and it was just like, and then right there, the train just started coming. You know, the train comes right there, the Amtrak. And the whole thing, I just wrote it right there in the parking lot at Rincon. Um, Cause I had the instrumental music on a CD and I had no lyrics. And then the whole song just came to me and, uh, and really just really quick. and. It actually was kind of a good feeling because I felt like uh, I felt like it was a good song and uh, it didn't it wasn't very difficult to write as far as most songs are and uh, 
So I just felt like that was a gift. Like, get lucky sometimes. It's an amazing song. Kelly, what's it like for you to hear somebody that you've known for so long and who's meant so much to your family then play a song about your brother? I think it's awesome. And honestly, I have to say, just sitting here listening to the stories, I keep forgetting that we're recording a podcast. I'm, just, I'm really enjoying it. And I feel like I'm just listening to one. And it's it's cool to hear from, you know, different perspective. And um, yeah, so this is, this is really cool for me. Very special. Glad you... The Knoll Foundation's going strong. Big up to uh, Law Records for putting out the uh, the compilation, Bradley's House. Absolutely. They did such a great job with that. Now, you're on there as Nice Mike. Where'd that come from? Well, that's the name that I put on the Pero Bravo CDs. Awesome. That's been my Pero Bravo uh, name for a while, for about five years, six years. <laughs> right on. Love it. So I kind of just figured that'd be, I didn't know what to call it, just being me. There's all, there, I mean, there's a Miguel now that like sells like 30 million records. Yeah, well, he could just only hope to be you. I know, but the point, you know what I mean? Like no search engine's gonna get through his true, true. armor of 30 million record like search engine status. So to, to put Miguel on something is almost like you might as well just put Earth, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Very so, true. So I just figured I'd put something that would point to uh, a cool band that actually shows up. You could come see something you could actually come see. And you recorded so, Don't Push on something special, right? Yeah, actually, they told me they wanted to do that acoustic tribute. And I had an idea. I had I still have Brad's four track original that we recorded Robin the Hood on. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to do it on that. I actually wanted to do the whole record on that. But it, that obviously wouldn't wouldn't have worked. But but yeah, it was fun to actually dust it off and and make a song on it. I think it's I just cool. It gets it a little bit of like Brad's spirit in there, you know. Yeah, I figured he thought that would be pretty cool. Like I said, I wanted to do the whole record on that. That would have been amazing. <laughs> but uh, it kind of got took in a different direction. So that's all right. It came out really good and, and big respect to all the band. I really want to thank all the individual artists, you know, musicians and engineers um, who do donated their time for that, you know, Pennywise and Descendants and all the, you know, other bands, reggae bands, everybody, you know, even if you didn't play on it, just donating the, uh, the use of the name for a good cause. My heart goes out to everybody. I'm just super thankful. And it's like, uh, I have a lot of gratitude that I want to express to all the musicians, you know, because they all got their own gig to do and they all got their own songs to play and stuff to do. So to take a minute to do something cool for us. It really uh, meant a lot to me. And uh, I got everybody uh, who had anything for us. And I got your back, all of you, and I mean it. And uh, most of you already know that. But um, for those who don't, who I don't know, because I don't know everybody this time out, and it's it's a... Uh, it's really interesting and cool, man. And I hope to, I get to meet everybody that uh, contributed to the to the record. And I really want to do more stuff. What else is on the decks, uh, Kelly, for the Noel Family Foundation? We definitely have more stuff coming up. I'm looking forward to 2021, and hopefully things will open up and we can start having some shows. I think it would be really cool to bring some of those artists together who are on the album, maybe. Yeah, would be would be a really cool thing. And yeah, it was just it was a really meaningful project for us. Because like you said, everyone donated their time, donated their performance, the engineering, everything. 
And to me, that spoke volumes about the impact of Sublime's music on so many artists. It was really powerful. So yeah, well, hopefully we'll have more of that. And yeah, we, we definitely have some stuff coming up that I can't really talk about yet, but it'll be good right. for sure. We'll be here to support it. And <laughs> thanks to all the people listening. And thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, Miguel, before should I play I a tune, go, should I play us out with the little Love and Rockets medley for Brad? Oh, we're yes, definitely going to have you play us out. But before I let you go, I've got to ask you because I told Kelly I'm going to do this with all of our guests, and we got yeah. Mr. Noel's answer last week. If you had to pick one Sublime song, your favorite, a song that you would play for somebody that never heard them before, so they could get the Sublime sounds, what's your song? Everything all considered in like one song to play, I'm going to have to pick the one I use when I get to a new studio. I never worked there. The song that I play full blast every time is April 29th, 1992, but the Leary version. Nice. The slower version. The reason I played the Leary version is technical because of all the instruments. There's like three different kick drums, two different basses. And so you really hear a lot. Technically, that's why I use that song. But also it's become my favorite song. And me and uh, Brad did those lyrics top to bottom in one take because uh, that was supposed to be a demo. Not a demo, it was just an outtake. We weren't gonna finish it. And Larry said, just try to do some vocals on it so I can at least turn it in and we did it in one take and then we really we didn't want to fix it and so i really had and that's you know i don't know that's something that you, if you had to play one song for in the alien universe where no one had ever heard what i got or um santeria santeria would be a close second because it's just an all-around great song but that version of uh April 29th, the Leary version is incredible. I love that version. And uh, second would be uh, Foolish Fool off the box set. I think that yeah. was uh, an amazing song. David Cohn his produced. His vocal range yeah. on that is amazing. Just the old thing. David Cohn put, uh, that's Paul McCartney's uh, Mellotron shit on there. He had all these instruments of Paul McCartney in his studio. <laughs> Like that's a really special moment going to New York to remix that Foolish Fool for the Box said like David Kahn uh, is a genius and a gem of a human and he he just went over you know bent over backwards to make that track sound so amazing. You really gotta listen to a full blast to appreciate it. It's amazing. Well, Mr. Noel picked Bad Fish because he said it's the only one he could play yeah. on the guitar. So <laughs> Yeah, we play that one all the time. It's a, well, it's a great tune. That's why I did uh all the fun we missed for you in the beginning, because that was like the tune that sort of influenced it. Well, Miguel, I can't thank you enough for giving us this time and, uh, and coming on and helping us spread the word about Sublime and the Foundation. It was uh, a pleasure and an honor for me to be able to chat with you. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this for the listeners. You got it, man. Thanks, Jared. And uh, thank you, Kelly. And uh, pay attention, uh, Noel Foundation and Bradley's house coming to you. Before you play us out, I just yeah. want to say a special thank you. It really, really means a lot. It was important to have you as our, our guest on our very second episode, right Number after two. my dad. Yeah, you you know, you've been, played a big part, not only in Sublime's history, but in my family's history. And, and uh, you're a very special person and I appreciate you big time. 
likewise and it's so it's nice to see you doing cool stuff and getting involved with your brother's uh legacy you know he would have loved that um thank you you know and uh and that's it you know we keep going forward it's that's occasionally you look back but the rest of the 99 percent of your time you look forward and but you always keep the strength of what you went through with you and absolutely and um and there's then it's always been like fond memories and cool uh musical and live vibes enough to go around uh, from the one Bradley James and all and we called him Brad and uh <laughs> I'm glad we uh got to share the time we did with him and he still inspires me to this day I honestly mean that right on right on well play us out here we go little uh love and rock smelly for the one Brad and all
Yeah. 
Well, that was an absolute awesome time chatting with Miguel. What an amazing guy who I believe is criminally underrated for his contribution, not just to Sublime, but the entire music industry. Kelly, how much fun was that? That was really fun. He's got stories for days. We, we seriously could have made like five episodes and we just let him keep going. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it for sure. Oh yeah, we will. We'll absolutely have him back because we had uh, we have a bunch of questions and stuff for him, and and we just he just kept going, and uh, and we we ran out of time. So we'll we'll certainly be having him back on to to chat about some of the new stuff that's going on and uh, tell us some more stories from the uh, from the good old days. He cannot be contained in one episode, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no, he is a uh, he is a mighty large personality. Now, on our first episode, we had your dad on as our guest, and that was a treat, not just for me, because I'm a fan, but for all of the fans and everybody who was listening. We had some amazing feedback after that first episode. Kelly, what did you hear after our first show? I heard a lot of great stuff, and I was I was particularly stoked because, you know, obviously my dad, I adore him, and I was really excited for people to get a chance to hear him and, you know, just hear him in a relaxed environment, telling stories and um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun for me, but it was really special. Yeah, I was, uh, I was literally overwhelmed. My inbox blew up all of the messages, all of the shares, all of the people saying that they were excited for the next episode. It was really, uh, an amazing feeling, uh, especially with us going into this and knowing what a, a great cause it was, but not really sure how it was going to be received and, yeah. uh, yeah. and the love that we got. My favorite comment was someone said that they laughed and they cried. I thought, oh, good. We hit the whole range of emotion. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah, awesome. it was uh, it was great. So and again, there's a there's a great community out there, um, you know, not just of the Sublime fans, but in that Bradley's house uh, Facebook group, um, you see the members growing every day, people sharing their stories, sharing the love. And I, I think the thing that is so amazing to me about that group is not just the fact that people feel comfortable enough to be able to come out and say, hey, this is what I'm going through right now, but then it's the amazing thread of comments of everyone else from the group saying, hey, we're here for you, or try this, or it's just, it's amazing. Yeah, it's the support. And quite honestly, that's at the heart of what we're doing with the Noel Family Foundation in Bradley's house. It's it's giving support. It's, you know, supporting musicians. It's supporting fans. It's it's supporting all of us. And I really think that that's at the heart of everything we're doing. So I think that's that group especially really exemplifies that. And I, I hope that that's what we're able to do with this podcast too, is provide support to people that maybe aren't a part of that Facebook group or, you know, aren't able to come see us when we have a booth at a show or something, you know, it's just in my mind, it's one more way that we can provide that support and encouragement and, you know, stories and entertainment, but, but really at the heart of it all, it's just keeping in mind that we're all, we're all doing the best we can. We're all living our lives and, and it doesn't always, it doesn't always work perfect. It's not always the way that we think it'll be, but, but we've got to be there for each other. And, and that's what I really love about it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And it's, uh, it's really special to be a part of that group, not just this podcast, but just to be a part of that group. So if you're listening and you're not a member, check out the page, uh, Bradley's House. It is a private group, so you will have to click join, um, but we'll, uh, you'll get yourself in there and get to see some of the, the love and excitement uh, um, that happens in there. And again, sometimes they're not all, you know, they're not all happy stories, but um, the point of this foundation and what you're doing with Bradley's House is that there is a way for there still to be a happy ending. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just life, you know, life is not, life is not perfect. Life is not always happy. There are good times and there are bad times. And I, I think that's why I liked that comment that, that someone said they laughed and they cried. I mean, that, that really is life. And, and it, it, for me, it's a privilege to be able to be a part of that in other people's lives too. Absolutely. And we've talked about it before the show got started. We talked about it in the first episode. Um, you know, we want to be there to support people, let them know that they're not alone, that other people have gone through it or are going through it. And if maybe that's not necessarily what you need at this point in your, in your struggle or your fight, we hope we can at least entertain you and let you step away from life for, for a little while and hear some cool, fun stories and just kind of take a load off. Absolutely. Which is, uh, which is something that's really neat. Now, one of the things that I had in my notes here that I wanted to mention, and I didn't bring it up in the first episode, and I wish that I did, um, is someone that's really special in the Sublime community. And if you have ever been out to Westminster and had the opportunity to visit Brad's Headstone, um, a lot of times it looks really nice and it looks fresh and brand new. And that's because Romy Rome, Jerome Aiken gets out there and he hand paints that thing uh, a few times a year. And uh, right now, Romy is going through some struggles of his own, um, fighting once again with, with cancer. And uh, he was back at the doctor again this week and, and hoping for some good news from his test. So um, I just wanted to send a, a special fat shout out to, uh, to Romy because it's uh, what he does is, is really awesome. And he's really an important part of this online sublime community and fans. I'm so glad you brought up Romy. Absolutely. He's an incredible human being. It was about 10 years ago when we found out who this angel was that was taking care of Brad's headstone. And prior to him doing it, my dad and stepmom had been doing it. And then all of a sudden they would come and it was, was freshly painted and, you know, everything looked nice. And, and for years we didn't know who it was. And then I got on Facebook and in some sublime groups and people were started, you know, started talking about it. And that's when we realized who it was. And of course, since then he's become a great friend and it's just something that he started doing out of the, the love that he has for Brad and for sublime. And then, you know, he'll get groups of people together and they all go and do it. And I don't know, just it's, it's something that touches my heart in a really special way because obviously they don't have to do it. And it's such a small thing and it's, it's nothing that they get big accolades for, but it's something that's really, really meaningful to me and my family. And uh, I'll always love Romy for that big time. Yeah, he's, uh, he's an awesome guy. I had the opportunity to hang out with him a little bit at, at Westminster. In fact, he organized like maybe the largest pizza order I've ever seen. And, uh, and certainly the only pizza order I've ever seen at a cemetery. Sure. Um, and uh, no, it was uh, it, a quite an interesting look on the face of the delivery driver as he pulled up to the side of a a headstone and there was a hundred of us standing out there and probably 10 people playing guitar and wow. um yeah and he he dropped off those pizzas but just an awesome guy and uh and him and his his mom mama sandy um you know they've they've been through yeah they've been through quite a bit recently and uh no matter what they go through you always see those smiling videos of Romy up there and he's fishing and he's having a good time and uh just want him to know that he is always in our thoughts and uh and we're really hoping for some good news for him and uh for him to keep fighting absolutely love that man yeah it was uh he's uh, he's awesome so uh and again that's just another piece of this community i mean again i'm a kid from the east coast who met a bunch of people in a in a 
online forum and have established some amazing friendships and some of the people that do this stuff is uh is just great and now you've seen a lot of it filter into the bradley's house uh facebook page a lot of the guys from the the groups have started to join and started to share more videos and eddie villa always working so hard putting videos together and he's been posting videos in there and people have really been enjoying them and um i'm not sure he even realizes how much that means in that group to some of those people that are just looking for for something cool to to hang their hat on something to smile about for the day and um we really appreciate those fans and the love and everybody sharing the show definitely definitely so the uh the house that bradley built what an amazing album guys remember you can hop over to law records and check out the house that bradley built Kelly, I didn't even ask you about this last week. And I guess I don't want to put you on the spot because I know everyone means a little something to you, but let's take away your dad and your nephew. Do you have a, a favorite track on the on the album? Absolutely not. I could not say that. There are so many that that touch me in a different way. You know, like every single one has has some special meaning to me or things that I know had special meaning to Brad. And I think that's what makes the album so phenomenal. And I think Paul Milbury did such an incredible job of pulling together uh, talented artists for sure, but also ones that were doing it with, with passion and with love and, and really wanting to, to give back and, and you know, show their appreciation for Brad and for Sublime. And, and I think he absolutely captured that. It's a great album. Let me ask you, as the foundation's putting that album together, do the bands pick what song they're going to play or was it kind of lined up what songs you wanted and how did that get worked out do you know yeah that's a great question actually in the beginning we were trying to just have one version of each song and so it was kind of like hey why don't you do this and how about you do that and you know so and so's going to do this so what if you do this and all that but then the the response from the music community was so overwhelming that it quickly became apparent that there was no way to control it there was no way to that we were going to have more submissions than there were songs. So, so then at some point that just all sort of went out the window and it just became like, all right, what do you got? What do you want to do? And, and it, it really worked out. It worked out. There's, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to say this, but there's some more to come. So it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. It, there's, there's a lot of really great, really great artists, really great tracks to come. Well, there's just, I mean, like your dad said, bands were kind of tripping over themselves to, to get on that album and it's uh yeah it's it's amazing i i love every track on there um it would be really difficult for me to to pick one that i i really wanted to go with obviously um don't push is probably one of my favorite sublime songs so to, to have that and have miguel doing it um you know that goes that goes a long way but being a Philly boy, Kelly, I'm going to have to give a little bit of extra love to G love. Cause you know, he's a, he's a Philly boy also. So um, yeah, he absolutely did. And, uh, and a huge, a huge sublime fan. Um, so the guys, again, the house that Bradley built uh, each week, we're going to play a, a snippet of the album as we close out the show. So make sure you hang on and, uh, and listen to that and, and catch a piece of a track. And again, you guys can hop over to lawrecords.com and pick that up as well as some t-shirts and some posters, uh, a bunch of cool stuff. And they have gone ahead and all of that proceeds are going directly to the foundation, correct? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. So Kelly, I think uh, for a second episode, 
we came out and you heard some awesome stories uh, about Brad and Miguel told some really cool stories about the band coming up and the making of the albums and um, probably some stories that maybe you've never heard before, right? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun and uh, I hope everybody really enjoyed it. Guys, um, of course, the point of this podcast is to get Bradley's house built uh, and get this thing going with the Noel Family Foundation. You can check out how you can be a part of that by visiting the NoelFamilyFoundation.org. Um, there's several ways to donate. Um, we've also set up uh, a cash app to make it even easier. I know time is of the essence these days, so you can go ahead and hit that cash app icon on your phone and uh, make a donation directly at the uh, it's money sign Noel family. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. You guys, uh, if a dollar, two dollars, um, whatever you guys can do, every bit of that's going to go towards um, having Bradley's house built. And it's kind of a neat way that you guys can be a part of the sublime story and, and help and get this going and have this going for years to come in, in Brad's memory, which is something that we're all really excited about and super gracious for those who have already donated. Well, Kelly, I had an amazing time today. Um, I hope that you did as well. I, uh, I want to thank you a little bit because you kind of let me take the driver's seat with Miguel. And uh, I feel like I kind of hogged the spotlight a little bit there, but you've known him for 30 years. So I needed my time with him as well. I, I needed to let you fanboy out a little and I'm good with that. Yeah, and I did, and I'm not ashamed to say it. So, and 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 anybody that's listening would have done the same thing. So, it's so true, absolutely. Yeah, it was vicariously it, through you, I'm sure. Well, good. I hope everybody enjoyed it, um, guys. We have the uh, Twitter page is set up, uh, Bradley's House Podcast. Um, you can reach uh, the Noel Family Foundation on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the big social media platforms. Check out the Facebook page, the group, uh, Bradley's House. Uh, just again, an amazing group we've talked about on here several times. Uh, we had a wonderful episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Until next time, she is Kelly Noel. I am Jared Orr. And guys, you don't have to go home, but it's time to leave Bradley's house. Okay, guys, the podcast is over, but here's a special clip from the compilation album, The House That Bradley Built, available at lawrecords.com, with all proceeds going to the Noel Family Foundation to help build Bradley's house. Here's Nice Mike, better known as Miguel, doing a special acoustic version of one of my favorites, Don't Push. Stolen from an African land, chased out with a knife, with a face like by Marley and mouth like a motorbike Oh, well, the bars are always open And the time's always right And if God's good, what goes unspoken The music goes on night and it goes If I was by Marley, I'd say, could you be love? And if I was happy, I'd float above What was Mike Tyson? I would look for a fight if I was the boomtown rats, I'd be staying up all night. If I was the king at rock, I would get stupid dumb. And if rhymes were about youngs, I'd be comfortably numb. But if I had a shotgun, you know what I'd do? I'd point it straight up at the sky and swing heaven on down to you. Because the bars are always open and the time is always right. If God's good, what goes unspoken?